1: here you go. Extraocular. Extraocular is the nothing personal word of the day. The extraocular muscles. Do you know what those are? Those are the muscles used by your kids when they roll their eyes at you. It's the extraocular muscles. Why is that the word of the day and why am I rolling my eyes? Well, My extraocular muscles are extremely tired right now, and they're tired because I've been rolling my eyes in such a significant way, reading all about Dak Prescott and his famous dinner party that happened just about a week ago. Why am I bringing this up? Six days later, why is it still causing my extraocular muscles to get overworked as opposed to every other muscle in my body that is completely atrophied? Those muscles are doing great. The backstory of that is Dak Prescott is that quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys who's in line for a huge contract. He was franchise tagged by the Cowboys. Never came to agreement with Jerry Jones. Who knows whether or not long term money is still going to be available by Jerry Jones to Dak Prescott? He's sort of a franchise quarterback. I think they've won four Super Bowls with Dak Prescott. I think that's how many he's won. Maybe five. No, maybe he's tied with Tom Brady for six Super Bowls. I think that's right. But in any case. He basically held a dinner party, and here's where it got interesting. They posted it, and I've told you about this on Nothing Personal. We've talked about it. We've seen pictures of actually Dak Prescott himself working out and then arm-in-arm with fellow athletes as they did their workouts. And the problem is that we're supposed to be social distancing. We're trying to get past this problem, this pandemic. We're trying to flatten the curve. We're trying to figure out a way forward, and the best way forward is actual cooperation. But that's not why my extraocular muscles were absolutely working overtime. I got a quote for you. It's really good. Here is Dak Prescott's quote regarding the dinner party that he had Friday night. This was days later as there was a wave of negative publicity and PR about what he had done. When the Dallas Cowboys had called him up purportedly and said, hey, Dak, it's enough already. Gnug. That call was an easy one. That doesn't come from Jerry Jones. It doesn't come from his son, the president. It doesn't come from anybody. It comes from the head coach, maybe even an assistant coach, maybe the assistant GM. I don't even think Jerry Jones, the GM, makes the call. It's just, Dak, you got to stop. You got to think. You got to use your head. Stop doing this. You're putting yourself and others in danger, please. So word got out, and here was the quote. I understand and accept that there are additional responsibilities and media scrutiny that come with being an NFL quarterback, but it is frustrating and disappointing when people provide completely inaccurate information from anonymous sources. To set the record straight, I know that we all need to do our best to socially distance, and like everyone else, I'm continuing to adjust to what that requires, but the truth is that I was with fewer than 10 people for a home dinner. Not a party, a home dinner on Friday night. So let me ask you a question. And this is not anything against Dak Prescott at all. So stop with the ats. You can always go on David P. Sampson. Follow me on Twitter. DM me. We'll do some So You Want to Talk to Sampson's. I always want you to rate, review. Give me five stars on Apple if you don't mind. If you're entertained during this time of pandemic but please ask a question. Oh God, there's a little tiny bug right on set. That's impossible. In any case, I was distracted by a little gnat that was on my screen. I thought it was Coca. When you go on Apple and you do a five star, please write a review as well. And in that, ask a question, ask any question, and I'll answer as many as I can in an end of month bonus pod. All right, got it? Any case, This is not against Dak Prescott. This is just a very simple question. How many of you know the difference between less and fewer? Less and fewer, how many? So remember the old Miller Lite commercials, a third less calories than the regular beer? It's fewer. Anytime you can count what you're talking about, you say fewer. Hey, I have fewer muscles than you do. Well, that may or may not be true. That may not be the best example. I have fewer calories that I've eaten. I use calories already. How do you like that, that five minutes in and I can't think of a real example of less and fewer, except if you can count them, it's fewer. And in Dak's quote, he used the word fewer exactly correctly. I just don't see it often that way. Is it possible that he had help writing the statement? Is it possibly smart enough to have help writing the statement? Because the kind of statements that come out when you don't have help, you end up doing like what Jim Crane did. So I want to talk about what Dak Prescott wrote and why he wrote it. See, it is true that as an NFL quarterback, he has additional responsibilities and there's additional media scrutiny. But guess what? The reason it's true is that you're paid for that. Part of what you are is a public figure. One thing that you have to instill in all players, and we try and we try and we try, and it doesn't work as often as it needs to, is that these players are young and they're in a position of great responsibility, both financial and otherwise, way before most of the rest of the world is. So it's normal that part of the job of a GM or a president is to be a glorified babysitter. It's normal that you're going to have players who aren't going to listen to everything you want them to do, who aren't going to follow all the rules. It's normal that you have to sometimes scold players. What is rare, picture a babysitter who babysits for your child, but your child makes more money than the babysitter. That makes it challenging. For whatever reason, we're in a society, and it's not uncommon in America, It's really not uncommon in any society where the amount of income, the amount of money leads to some sort of unearned, unwarranted respect. I make more money than you. Therefore, you're supposed to respect me more than I respect you. I don't understand why that's the case. Some of the greatest minds in the world, some of the most brilliant people worthy of respect don't make any money. They're called teachers, mothers, fathers, stay-at-home dads, people who are not working because they can't work or don't want to work, but they're brilliant minds who deserve respect. You think Dak Prescott is just learning right now that he's under increased media scrutiny? He is literally the subject of sports talk shows every single day. He knows exactly what he's doing. One thing that made me crazy with the players over my years is when they would feign ignorance. Don't pretend that you don't know what the rule is. Just acknowledge the fact that you've broken it. Don't pretend that you didn't realize that there was a reporter around when you were talking. Just say you didn't care. Don't pretend that you didn't see the sign that was a hit and run. Just say you didn't learn the signs. Don't pretend that by accident your playbook was stolen when you know that you just lost your playbook. Just take responsibility. Dak Prescott needs to take responsibility for what he's doing and the way he's acting. But it's not just Dak Prescott. It's all of us. We're all doing our part. I would prefer Dak Prescott had done a quote saying, listen. It was wholly inappropriate for me to have a dinner the way I did because I know we weren't practicing proper social distancing. And I do not want to be responsible for anyone getting sick and for doing any more to overcrowd or do anything that the healthcare system will continue to bend on its way to breaking. I don't want to be a part of that. And frankly, I want to do more because I want to get back to playing football so I can provide and help provide entertainment to you. Because you have been there for me over all the years of my career, and I want to be there for you. I apologize. What would be wrong with that? I don't know. You just won't do it. Mike Trout came out, and so you want to talk to Samson, my first ever Mike Trout, so you want to talk to Samson, so you want to talk to Samson, get in my, get in my Twitter, get in there, get in there and be a DMer. it's a good question, Mike Trout went public, when he goes public talking, people listen, let me give you the background of Mike Trout, best player in baseball right now on a team that can't win, never won a playoff game, never won a playoff series, has no playoff rings, has nothing, he's been surrounded by talent, sort of talent, very overpaid talent by an owner who's tried and tried and tried to build around him to no avail. The Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim have really no prospects of winning in the future, but they did sign Anthony Rendon, tried to get Garrett Cole to pitch for them, but instead signed Anthony Rendon, yet another position player, to go with Mike Trout and, of course, the last few years of Albert Pujols. But Mike Trout is the face of baseball. No, he's not. Christian Yelich is. No, he's not. Yeah, I think he actually is closer to the face of baseball. Is Aaron Judge? I don't know. Which baseball players have you seen out and about doing stuff? And I don't mean out and about in a lack of social distancing manner. I mean out and about and taking a leadership role. Who's out there saying, I am going to do more than my part? And listen, there are players who are donating money. They're donating time. They're donating meals. They're delivering meals. They are doing tremendously good things. Who's going to be the face? Rob Manford, the commissioner, wanted Mike Trout to be the face. And Mike Trout said, I am who I am said dr seuss i will not eat green eggs and ham i will not eat them sam i am so mike trout when he talks we're still listening because members of the media we need someone with that level of gravitas that level of ability it's like in your clubhouse you can't have a leader of your team be the bench player the bench players are critical but the leader of your team has to be the best player on your team so mike Trout came out and said hey he was doing an interview and said you know I don't really like the Arizona plan. And here's why. And he talked about the fact that his wife is pregnant and expecting a baby in August. And he said, I don't like the idea of being quarantined in a hotel. What am I going to do? Sit in a hotel? So you want to talk to Samson? Mike Trout said he doesn't like the Arizona plan. Does that mean it won't happen? I'm going to answer that and then go back to the Arizona plan and Mike Trout. Mike Trout not liking the Arizona plan has about as much weight as me not liking the Arizona plan. It doesn't matter. If the Arizona plan is found to be correct and possible, meaning all 30 teams go to Arizona and they play a regular season in spring training facilities and chase field where the Diamondbacks play their major league games, there will be enough votes by the Players Association because they want to get paid. So Mike Trout individually, think back to the NFL collective bargaining agreement when big stars like Aaron Rodgers came out against the agreement. Did that have any weight in the final vote? No, not at all. The final vote passed. Now, it didn't pass by a lot, but it passed. Mike Trout coming out and saying, I don't want to sit in a hotel. I don't blame him. Do you know in baseball what you do is when you're on the road you do check into a hotel. It's not very difficult. You get off a chartered plane, you get into a bus, you go right from the run, right from the plane to the bus which is on the runway. You walk down the stairs into the bus. The bus takes you to the hotel. You walk in the door of the hotel. There's a table. On the table is your name with a key. There's bananas. There's water. There's fruit. There's cookies chips. You grab as much as you can. You take your key, you go upstairs. Then a few minutes later, a knock on the door. And it is a bellman who has your bag, which by the way, you haven't seen since you put your bag in front of your locker at the city where you were before you traveled to the new city. You get in the hotel, go to bed, wake up, go with your buddies, have breakfast, maybe room service, but most likely you're going out to a restaurant. Then you get to the ballpark by taxi, or by a private driver, or sometimes you wait for the team bus. Generally, the team bus only has the starting pitcher on it and members of the media and broadcasting team. So the team bus goes, the players go, you go play a game, come back to your hotel, go out to dinner late at night, maybe order room service, wake up, do it again, and then again. And then you go to the next city, Check out actually has to happen by the players themselves. They go downstairs. They have to check out. They have to pay their incidentals. Their incidentals are room service, any sort of movies, anything else they would have done in the room that would be charged to the room, spa appointments, et cetera. They pay with a credit card, their own credit card, or they pay with cash because all players get meal money but end up eating a lot of their meals in the clubhouse and then tip clubbies with checks. The point is it's not entirely uncommon for people like Mike Trout or other players to spend enormous amount of time in a hotel. The difference is they can always leave. In a quarantine situation, in a bubble situation, on the private island of the Bellagio Fountains Dana White UFC situation, you're in your hotel or you're in the ballpark. That's it. Do we really actually think that players will agree to that, that they'll be unable, like prisoners, the way – that's like a quarantine Except right now, players are in their homes, and even minimum players, meaning young players, the odds are they're in apartments much bigger than what even a hotel suite would be, but all baseball players only get a regular room. The more wealthy players, more experienced players, can upgrade to a suite, but they have to pay the difference, or they can put it in their contract that they get a suite on the road. We did that. We'd allow a suite on the road for certain players, but we'd make them pay the difference because there's a room rate and a suite rate whenever you have a contract with a hotel. All teams have contracts with hotels. So Mike Trout not liking the Arizona plan makes perfect sense to me because you've already heard from Zach Wheeler. You've heard from a bunch of players that the plan as it is right now is a tough one because they'd be sequestered away from their families. Wait, it could be different. Maybe they'll allow families in the quarantine and increase the number of tests and increase the number of people in the bubble. Now, let me picture a major league player with his wife and three children in a hotel suite. Hmm. NGTH. Not going to happen. Thank you. So you want to talk to Samson? Doesn't matter. He doesn't like the plan. What matters is the plan has a lot of work to do. One of the downsides of when, a, uh, of when a player dies, tragically, is that there's going to be an investigation, and then there's going to be the results of that investigation, and yesterday we had that in Major League Baseball, and it brought up a lot of memories, and it brought up a lot of, lot of bad issues that I need to discuss. This is nothing personal. It's business, and this is business. It's also sort of personal. Coca, I'm going to talk a little personally here, just a little. Roy Halladay died in a plane crash. I don't know if you remember. It was a couple years ago. He was then elected into the Hall of Fame posthumously. It was actually a fantastic induction ceremony with his wife, his children. Great pitcher. Pitched a perfect game against the uh, uh, no-hitter Marlins. Really, you know, with the Blue Jays, with the Philly, just a phenomenal pitcher. Phenomenal. Well, when there's a plane crash, he was flying in a plane that, Really is the type of plane that you see in a James Bond movie where the wings actually fold up and you can put it on the back of your car and drive it to a place and then start flying a true John Denver special. We had seen witness reports of the day he was flying, that he was flying super low to the ground in great speed, doing maneuvers, and then he was doing these stunt maneuvers. And then the plane plunged nose down into the water. The autopsy revealed that he actually died of blunt trauma and drowning. As you know, you can only drown if you're alive upon impact. The problem is that the NTSB and the autopsy results also came out and it was reported that in Roy Halliday's system were an unusually large amount of amphetamines and other types of drugs, including anxiety drugs, drugs for depression, Ambien and the combination of things make people question whether or not he should have been flying or operating any sort of machinery. As you know, when you take Ambien, you shouldn't do anything or else you're Roseanne Barr or Tiger Woods. As you know, if you're taking any pain medication and we know that Roy Halliday had major pain issues, he had major back problems. We also found out that he was in some sort of rehab for some sort of abuse of some sort of pain medication or other such drugs. I'm not selling the the history or reputation or the legacy of Roy Halladay. The purpose of this segment is to explain that what happened to Roy Halladay made me think about something. I internalized it and I want to talk to you about it because I always appreciate you listening and I appreciate going on the nothing personal journey with me and it made me think about retired players and what they go through. Roy Halladay from the outside had it all. Had a family had a hall of fame career? What, what had money, had hobbies? What could have gone wrong? What would cause a level of depression? What would cause anxiety? What would cause a desire to have so many drugs in the system and then do maneuvers in a plane where you don't have enough experience? Is it ego? Is it the feeling of invincibility? And then I got to thinking that he wasn't an active player when he passed away. He was retired. And what I thought about was the fact that I never paid any attention to most of the players who retired after I had them with the Marlins or the Expos. I never followed up with them. I never stayed in touch. Rare occasion with with players who I had a specific relationship with. But these are guys in their 30s, sometimes in their 20s, very rarely in their 40s. Young people, yes, they've got plenty of money. But all of a sudden, they find themselves in the real world where they're not being coddled to, where they're not being taken care of. And they have to fend for themselves. And the reason that I didn't stay in touch with them is I always pretend that I was too busy or they weren't helping me. They weren't helping the team. They weren't giving me victories, helping me raise revenue. If you want to come work for the team and be an alumni ambassador, then I'm going to stay in touch with you. But if you don't have anything to do with the team, I'm not staying in touch. Why? What's the responsibility of team presidents or CEOs of companies? What's the responsibility to take care of players or employees once they are no longer in your employ? Why is it that I could feel that I didn't do enough, that I don't do enough for players when they're not in my life? But isn't it true that people come in and out of your life all the time? Are you in touch with all of your friends from high school or college or from the last job that you had? Do you stay in touch with people who are such an important part of your life for a very intense period of time? Relationships, they slip away. Friendships. True friendships, very few true friendships. Someone once told me, my grandfather actually, once said that if you have five true friends in your entire life, you should consider yourself lucky. And a true friend is someone who never judges. A true friend is someone who's always there no matter what. It's your the person. It's the person for you. Not everyone can be the person. Plenty of people pretend to be the people. I pretended to be the person with players saying, come to me. I'm there. And what's interesting is that GMs do it, fellow teammates do it, players do it, owners do it, everybody does it. And I got to thinking when I read about Roy Halladay, it's not just in baseball, it's everywhere. And I'm not sure that I have that responsibility, but it doesn't mean I don't have the guilt. It doesn't mean that when something happens, a former pitcher of ours, you may know him in New York, his nickname by George Steinbrenner, who rest in peace, his son Hank passed away a couple days ago, said uh, he was called the fat toad. Deki Arabu was a pitcher who I uh, was part of a trade for my first year in baseball. Traded a lot of people to the Yankees to get him, and uh, including Ted Lilly. I think Jake West. Not Jake West. Who else did we trade? I can't remember. Coco, who did we trade to get Hideki Arabu in 2000 from the Yankees? It was three players. I'm pretty sure Ted Lee was one of them. He's checking now. or At least he's pretending to scurry and look at transactions under Hideki Arabu. Then he's going to whisper to my ear, if it's in bold, I don't have to delay more than 10 more seconds. But that's not really the big part of the story. The big part is that a couple of years ago, Hideki Arabu took his own life. I had not been in touch with Hideki since I, he was gone from the Expos. He was a tough, tough guy, a troubled guy. He never performed for us the way he was supposed to perform. And I held it against him. I actually held it against Tadeki Arabu that his lack of performance was not because we evaluated him wrong. It was because he was a better pitcher who just couldn't pitch well for us. And what's interesting, thank you, it was Jake Westbrook and Ted Lilly. I forgot about Christian Parker. So it was Ted Lilly, Christian Parker and Jake Westbrook. Lillian Westbrook actually had major league careers, nothing spectacular. Christian Parker, I think, got a tiny sip of coffee. But Arabu pitched for us in 2000. I think he may have come back in 2001 as well. But the reality is that I didn't, never followed up with him, never paid attention to him. And then you read what happened. So Coke has given me a quote that I want to, uh, I want to read to you. And uh, it just came out, and it was his wife, Brandy Halliday said yesterday's NTSB report on Roy's accident was painful for our family as it has caused us to relive the worst day of our lives. It's reinforced what I previously stated that no one's perfect. Most families struggle in some capacity and ours was no exception. We respectfully ask that you not make assumptions or pass judgment. Rather, we encourage you to hug your loved ones and appreciate having them in your lives. As a family, we ask that you allow Roy to rest in peace. That's the second time this week that's happened, Coco. where we've had a topic, we've talked about it, and all of a sudden someone releases or has a quote about exactly what we were talking about, and the quote was exactly what I was saying. No one knows. We all think that everyone has the most glorious life. Everyone thinks all movie stars and athletes, whether it's Sadeki Arabu, or or Roy Halliday, or anybody, anybody, your favorite player, Mike Trout, you think he has the perfect life? You think he doesn't fight with his wife? You think he doesn't get frustrated, lonely, and quarantined? You think he doesn't get... Selfish sometimes or selfless other times? Brandy Halliday's statement's right. It shouldn't change what we think. We should respect their privacy. But the fact of the matter remains that drug problems around Major League Baseball are real. The death of Tyler Skaggs proves that. Last season, a player who overdosed. We've got to do better. I should have done better. I could have done better. We will do better. Rest in peace, Roy. So I've been reviewing movies. Yeah, every day. I love movies. The quarantine has been really good for my binging. That's for sure. Although I can't say that I wasn't binging before the quarantine, but now I'm binging more with slightly less guilt about the binging. Have you noticed that, that your level of guilt about binging is only lessened by reading people's tweets or posts about all the exercising they're doing and how they're taking advantage of this opportunity to clean their closet or give stuff away or do things that they never had a chance to do? Yeah, I'm binging. Proud of it. I started, we started, you're doing it. I hope you're doing it. Are you doing the quarantine lifetime best picture challenge? Watching every best picture since you were born? Well, I watched Rain Man yesterday. 2008 best picture. Coca, check that. Why is 2008 in my mind? I could be wrong, but I think I'm not. I think it was 1988 is what I meant. Rain Man is 1988, not 2008. Why 1988? Because Tom Cruise was 26 years old when he was in Rain Man. 26 acting opposite Dustin Hoffman, 26, the same age that Orson Welles was in Citizen Kane. Tom Cruise showed that he can act. Remember when he was taking roles like uh, Born on the Fourth of July? Talked about that on a show I did uh, um, earlier. And uh, he's just a great actor. But Rain Man, directed by Barry Levinson, it's, it's, I, I get it. It's old. It's 32 years old. It's aged perfectly. Directed by Barry Levinson, starring Dustin Hoffman, as an autistic man and his brother. And the thing is that it's a movie about family. It's a movie about love. It's a movie about greed. It's a movie about ego. And at the end, it ends up being a movie about love. And the love story is the brother story. It's Tom Cruise who needs to get Dustin Hoffman, his brother, because of Money. Love stories always start with money and greed, don't they? Dustin Hoffman inherited a bunch of money from their father, and Tom Cruise needed it for his business, which is some sort of crazy car business. But this is so perfectly acted. It's a road trip movie. It's a buddy movie. It's a brother movie. And Dustin Hoffman won the Oscar Best Actor for his performance as an autistic man so perfect. You've heard me talk about it, right? Right? When I've said, oh, 10 minutes to Wapner. Of course, 10 minutes to Wapner. That's Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man. You should watch it, please. If it's not part of your lifetime quarantine best picture challenge, quarantine lifetime best picture challenge, it's still worth it to watch. 1988 Rain Man. I got a second review that I got to do, and I normally only do one, but I got a DM, and so I, I actually watched a, uh, a double feature in addition to binging because why not? Once I stopped sweating from the whole light fiasco yesterday – I watched. She's out of my league. Someone DM me and said, "Please review. She's out of my league." Who asked for? She's out of my league. I love that movie. I've seen that movie five times minimum. I watched it again. Never get sick of it. Who doesn't love a movie where Jay Baruchel can actually get Alice Eve? How is that possible in the real world? It's like O'Malley possibly getting with Catherine Heigl in Grey's Anatomy. Can that happen? Really? She's Out of My League is about exactly that, a TSA worker named Jay Baruchel. That's right, the guy from Montreal, born in Ottawa, raised in Montreal. And he meets Alice Eve, and somehow they start something. He's the most awkward guy in the world. And, of course, she starts feeling sorry for him, and then she grows to love him. And then he's got to meet the family. She's got to meet the family. Totally awkward. She's totally out of his league until you realize the point of the movie. There are no leagues. Think about that for one second, if you don't mind. There are no leagues. She's out of my league. Thank you for that. Thanks for the DM. People are sending me a lot of good movies. I keep a list on my phone of all of the movies that are suggested that I watch. And it's tough, right? I'm getting a lot of them. I'm going to get through as many as I can. I'm hoping the quarantine ends. What? Yes, you see Wilson. For those of you watching, you notice there's a new part of my chair. Wilson's back. If you're just listening, then you know. Well, if you've never seen the set at CBS Sports HQ. I've got Wilson on set, but I haven't been able to go back into CBS HQ. So I had to get another Wilson. So this is Wilson 2. Wilson 1 is at the set. I'm with Wilson 2. I've been, Wilson 2 and I had a um, very good conversation this morning. He was concerned about his placement on the set. So I've perched him up perfectly on the chair where I'm sitting on a baseball glove chair. He's in the thumb He wanted to be in the forefinger over my right shoulder, but I explained to him that he wouldn't be able to properly be seen on camera, so he's satisfied with being on the thumb, but he's concerned about the amount of gesticulating that I do during the course of a show, which I do. I'm a gesticulator. I talk with my hands, and he said, please keep your left elbow down. If not, he's going to roll away, and I'm going to have to cry. Wilson, never again. (sighs) The IOC came out with some news yesterday. I want to catch you up on some news today. This is uh, two bits of news about coronavirus. Actually, there are a couple of bits of news, but the first one is this. The International Olympic Committee, and that is a committee that we've talked about here. We told you they were going to have to postpone the Olympics way before they did. I mean, it was the most obvious decision ever. They did. Then when they rescheduled them, we said, wow, that's a quick reschedule. But they did it for July 23rd of 2021. No way of knowing whether or not that's possible because will there be a vaccine by then? Will there be people allowed to travel? And will there be people wanting to travel? But the athletes, we talked about it, they need a date. They need a date to shoot for because that's how you train. But the IOC, no longer than, what has it been, two weeks? Is anyone else losing track of time? I don't remember if it's been two weeks or a month or a week or it could have been in yesterday's show when the IOC moved the Olympics. Well, yesterday came out and said they have acknowledged there is no plan B if the Olympics cannot take place in 2021. Holy cow. That is the first time that they've come out and said that. It was so awful and depressing to hear them say it, but it's so obvious and so true that I wish they just hadn't said it. Of course, there's no plan B. Plan B is 2021, plan C is straight cancel. They can't push it to 2022 because the next Olympics are in 2024. That's number one. Number two, Japan is spending between two and six billion is the estimate. Two and six billion, two to six. Let's just take the middle, four billion dollars. Let's take the low end, actually, two billion dollars. Take the middle of those two, three billion dollars. That's what Japan is spending in order to finance the cost of the one year delay of the Olympics. Do you think the $3 billion could be used more wisely? Would it have been better just to shut down the Olympics altogether, take the loss, and move on? Is it hard sometimes not to throw good money after bad because you so badly are trying to recapture something that you had or so badly make something real that is not, that used to be? How many of you have tried to do that? How many of you have spent money fixing something, sewing a teddy bear, let's say, putting him back together because you so badly don't want him to fall apart, you end up spending more I'm sewing them back together than buying a new one. You're saying there's sentimentality. All right, fine. What about at carnivals when you spend fifty dollars trying to get a fifty cent huge stuffed animal because you're trying to throw a ping pong ball into a fishbowl or put a ten inch basketball into a nine inch basket? We've all done it. At some point you say, That's it, I'm done. Japan spending $3 billion, $2 to $6 billion on delay of the Olympics, and we're surprised to hear that they're done if it doesn't happen in 2021, truly is the most obvious thing of all time. But what is the economic benefit for Japan to having those Olympics? And what is the social benefit of the Olympics actually happening and having their an ability to look forward to that sort of competition? My argument is that back in the 80s, 70s, The height of the Cold War with Russia, the miracle on ice hockey team, even the dream team in 92 in basketball. That's almost 20 years ago, 30 years ago. That's almost 30 years ago, the dream team in Barcelona. Holy shnikes. The fact of the matter is that the benefit, the patriotic benefit of the Olympics has dissipated over time as the world has become a smaller place. Smaller because of communication. Smaller because of social media. It used to be that if you didn't know the medal count, you were the anomaly. It used to be that if you were not rooting for the USA over the USSR, you were a traitor. We all knew about the East German judges in figure skating, how they would never give good scores to the U.S. figure skaters. We knew that the USSR athletes were doping and we hated them for it. We just hated everything about every other country, and we were patriotic, and when you hear the national anthem, when you are standing on the, um, coca, what's the word, where you stand on the podium, either gold, silver, or bronze medalist, it was major. Now, the Olympics are still amazing. I love watching amateurs compete, amateurs in quotes, obviously. I love watching all of it. On the other hand, when you're talking about the social benefit of the Olympics, it's not there anymore. We have so much we need to do in order to get this world back to a new social norm that the Olympics, to me, are not going to play the big role that people think they're going to play. As a matter of fact, I'm not convinced sports is going to play that role. The, Royce, the role that sports needs to play, the distraction, the entertainment, but in terms of people understanding how they feel comfortable, how they're going to act in the new normal, that won't come from sports. That's going to come from all of us individually. When are we comfortable going back to a restaurant? When are we comfortable getting our phone scanned and going into a venue? When are we comfortable getting on a plane again or a train or a bus? When are we comfortable being around people in a bar atmosphere, as an example? Those are all things that are going to come, and they're going to come at different pace for everybody. It doesn't matter that the PGA Championship just announced their the PGA Tour announced all their dates, and all of a sudden that's going to make all of us feel better. No, it's going to be great to watch golf if, in fact, it can happen in June, which they've announced. It'd be great to watch the Olympics in 2021. It'd be great to watch the NBA in 2020. It'd be great for baseball season to open because my face itches. But what's more important is how we individually will react. How we will walk outside and react to the new normal. Ay, what a nightmare for my Knicks. My, you know, I've told you before that I'm, uh, the Knicks are my favorite team of all time. The Knicks before the Marlins, before the Expos, because I was a fan then. And not the current Knicks because unfortunately my fandom has disappeared and I'm two and a half years out of baseball and I still have not had my fandom come back. Maybe it's because I'm now doing this and it's business for me and I'm not letting anything be personal. But I'll tell you, back in the day, I would watch every Nick game. I was lucky enough to go to so many Knick games, travel, everything. And you know that Patrick Ewing was my favorite player of all time to this day. You know that when the Knicks won Game 7 against the Indiana Pacers in 1994 to finally go to the finals for the first time since 1973 was the greatest sporting event I'd ever been to. To this day, including I've been in a World Series-winning clubhouse. I've crossed the finish line at an Ironman in Hawaii. I've done some cool stuff. But being a fan, being a part of the crowd, when the Knicks won Game 7 with Patrick Ewing, 94-90 in June of 1994 was the pinnacle, the number one. It never got better. It never got better. It never will. It is so sad for me, some of the infighting that I'm learning about, because now when I read it, I know all about it. And I say to myself, my God, I knew it. I knew it. As I got into sports and as I ran a team for those 18 years, I knew what was going on in a clubhouse. I knew the dynamics of a locker room. I knew that players did not get along. I knew that what fans want to believe is true is not true at all. My job as a team president was to keep the fantasy alive, keep all the negativity inside the clubhouse. Do not let anything, anything escape to the fans. We owe it to them. We owe it to the fans to put on a facade of perfection. We don't want fights in the clubhouse. We don't want people airing dirty laundry in media or on social media giving interviews. We don't want any of that. Why? Because deep down in a place that fans don't ever want to go to and visit, they don't want to acknowledge. They know very well the unlikelihood that clubhouses and teams, when you're spending that kind of time together, when you're like a family, they know very well that they don't get along perfectly. But until we actually say the words or they see video proof or hear audio proof, they don't want to believe it. And it's still happening to me. I am a veteran, veteran industry executive. I'm old and I didn't want to believe it. And I knew it. Charles Oakley called out Patrick Ewing on a radio show. Said that Patrick was not a leader. Said that Patrick was all about Patrick. Derek Harper then did a follow-up and said Patrick takes care of Patrick. Derek Harper said Charles Oakley was the heart and soul of the team. It bothered me so much to hear Oak saying those things and Derek saying those things because I don't want anyone to impugn the leadership of Patrick Ewing, even though I know that it was lacking. I don't want anyone to impugn the personality of Patrick, even though in my own experience I knew that he was selfish and angry and bitter and about him. But I didn't want to believe it. What do you do? What do you do when you're running a team and you know that your superstar is not the leader of your team? What did Pat Riley do in 94 when he knew that it was Oakley and Mason who were the heart and soul of his team? You cross your fingers and hope to God that you can win anyway. Because the fact of the matter is more often than not, the best player on the team is really not the leader. The best player on our championship team was Pudge Rodriguez in 2003. He wasn't the leader. Not at all. And the problem is when your best player is not your leader – it takes a whole lot of luck and good fortune to win a ring. And the Knicks could never go over the hump. Was it a Jordan hump? Yeah. Was it an Elijah Juan hump? Yeah. But when you're looking to Patrick Ewing and he as your best player, as the one who you want to give the ball to, and in basketball, it's so much more important. And we're about to watch a documentary coming up starting Sunday called The Last Dance. It's a 10-part documentary on Jordan's Bulls. You know very well the stories of Jordan and the fights and the problems. You know Jordan's come out and said, by the way, I'm not going to look good in this documentary. Well, no, you're not going to look good because you were not very well liked. Now, you were respected as the best player in the game by far, a way better player than Patrick Ewing was, not even a question. You're the greatest basketball player in the history of the NBA. When you're that good, you actually get a pass from time to time if you're not going to be liked. But what Michael Jordan was, was a leader. He expected out of his teammates everything that he expected out of himself. He made sure his teammates worked as hard as he did. Whether Michael Jordan was up gambling and partying all night long before a game, that didn't matter. Because when it was time to take the court, he was the best player on the court by far. It's not what Patrick was. And that's why the Knicks never won a ring. But it hurt me. It hurt me as a fan because I was brought back immediately to those times as a fan and brought back thinking, my God, I didn't want to know it for sure. And now I can never unknow it. I can never unthink about, that's not a word. I can never not think about the team, the Knicks teams of the nineties and Patrick Ewing's career. I can never not think about what it meant the way he was and why there are no rings or championships and no parades that I was ever able to go to. Day 32 of the ML Beer Challenge, still going. God, are we still going and going strong? So I put this out, and, and I have the right to change my mind, and I am changing my mind. At first, what I was going to do is give $1,000 to 30 baseball teams, in which we did over 30 days. Then the next 70 days, because I pledged 1000 a day for 100 days or until Major League Baseball opens its season, I pledged, no matter what, I'm not going to shave till MLB opens its season, but 1,000 a day for 100 days, the first 100 days. Get it? The first 100 days? Anyway, today's day 32, and I put it out there in the universe, and you guys responded. Thank you. And the question I posed of you yesterday was, should I be doing South Florida charities, or should I start maybe going through the NBA cities and keep going from team to team, city to city? I got a lot of people commenting on it, but one comment actually convinced me. And I acknowledge this. The comment was, hey, you've got a lot of listeners outside of Florida. I know how much you love South Florida. But one of the greatest things about the beard challenge is that you have been able to spread around your generous donations to everywhere. Thank you. I appreciate you following up and commenting and I'm going with you. I did Feeding South Florida yesterday. That's Florida. I'm now going to do the NBA teams in order over the next 32 days, starting today. Today is the Atlanta Hawks. I want to single out the Boys and Girls Club of America, the Boys and Girls Club of Atlanta, a good friend, a running partner, a great writer, a great runner. Her name is Stephanie Hoppy. She and Matthew, are uh, her husband Matthew, are accomplished runners, accomplished people in their own right, in business and in life. And I pledged $1,000 to the Boys and Girls Club of Atlanta, where she works. It's actually the Boys and Girls Club of America's, but Boys and Girls Club of Atlanta is right in the building. Boys and Girls Club is a big MLB charity as well. They are taking care of just because there's no school doesn't mean they're not taking care of kids, quote-unquote, after school. They're doing programs and food and all sorts of things, trying to take care of as many kids as they can. But I'm only giving $998, not a 1000 Why? You know why, Matt Happy, you owe me $2, Mortimer. We had $2 bets, and I won them both, and you never paid. Number one, you said Terry Francona would be the manager of the year last year. He wasn't. You said the Cleveland Indians would win the division. They didn't. You owe me 2 bucks. Take that 2 bucks. donate it to the place where your wife works, the Boys and Girls Club of America, the Boys and Girls Club of Atlanta. I'm sending $998. You send $2. Then it's 1000 Thanks, Hoppy family. Wait to see. I read something so awesome yesterday, and it's going to be happening whenever there's a 2020 season. It's all about the Buccaneers and the Patriots. It's all about Brady and Belichick. Everyone is going crazy. Who's better? Who's worse? Did the coach make the player? Did the player make the coach? You and I talked about this. We've talked about it on several of the shows. Well, the over-unders finally came out. Guess what? The Tampa Bay Buccaneers have an over-under of nine wins, assuming they're 16 games. And the New England Patriots, their lowest over-under in, I assume, a decade at least, is eight and a half games. That means the Buccaneers are favored to win more games than the New England Patriots. Well, I've got a special way to see for you. I'm going coach. The Patriots will have a better record than the Bucks, And I guarantee you that Bill Belichick, who's celebrating his 68th birthday today, happy birthday, GOAT coach. You're going to call the GOAT player when the season's done. You're going to show the record. You're going to congratulate me on the way to see victory. And you're going to say, hey, Tommy, boy, it's just business. It was nothing personal.
0: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why?